0: Hey, deserving listeners. Let me tell you a story about someone who has narcissistic personality disorder. This is a profile of a semi-real person, and I've changed a number of the details to mask their identity. If this person were to hear this, they would not even recognize themselves. So, uh, so that's you know that's the common practice for us therapists. So, but you know, I'm describing. I'm describing actual events, if that makes any sense. Okay, so he grew up in an alcoholic family. His childhood was very rough. His parents were too busy or too distracted to give him any tension or any love. So he turned to sports and grades as a way to gain attention from other people, including his family. But he never really felt good about himself. In fact, deep down he had extremely low self-esteem like really really low self-esteem like deep deep shame he hated himself but he was good at sports and he knew how to get people to like him so he distracted himself with he distracted himself with sports and and also by being entertaining to other people he was the clown he was the good boy but when he was home he was easily hurt, and he was often very moody and very distant. And if someone in his family made fun of him, he really was hurt easily, and he would think about it day and night, and he would react very badly when people teased him. And he spent a lot of energy making sure that no one could tease him. So he made sure that his hair was perfect, that his outfits outfits were just right. And he also adapted by leaning into the ridicule at times, somewhat. So he started wearing uh, weird outfits. That way, if someone made fun of him, he knew that his fashion sense was just better than the average person. He had developed a sense of superiority in other areas, too. In sports, he was often the best player, and he took a lot of pride in that. But at home, he didn't get a lot of pride, and he mostly felt invisible. He felt the constant tension between his parents. They would get into violent arguments sometimes. And sometimes his father would disappear for several days without any explanation. So after a while, he decided he would just stay in his room most of the time. Sometimes he would console his mother as she drank herself to sleep at night. As a teenager, he eventually got a girlfriend and they fell madly in love. They talked about their love as if their love was the only love that ever existed. They were both really popular at school, and they both really loved to be on stage. But as with most high school romances, their relationship ended in a a very dramatic fashion. One night, she got drunk at a party, and she got together with his best friend, and he was devastated, and he broke up with her. He was deeply humiliated. He felt completely blindsided by this. He, it didn't make any sense to him. It was just mind-boggling. At first, he didn't even believe it happened, but after a while, it finally sunk in. And he, yeah, he just felt humiliated and upset, and he couldn't sleep at night. His mind was racing. He couldn't stop thinking about her. Sometimes in the middle of the night, he would descend into panic and fear, and he would cope with this by jogging around the neighborhood, as a way of distracting himself from his, from his terrifying fear. He felt untethered to the world. He felt like he wasn't really connected to his life anymore. He went to Instagram and posted a, a number of pictures that related to his deep pain and his despair and his anger at his ex-girlfriend. And people responded online to him. And that gave him some consolation. But it was short-lived. So he decided that he would uh, start writing about her and he made a blog and he went into depth about everything that she had done to him and everything that, everything that was wrong about her. And he posted it and eventually she got to, she got in touch with him and told him to take it down or else she was going to call the school or something. And he, he said, okay, fine. But the damage was already done, it was already out there, and everyone had read the blog. He also found a YouTube video that talked about mindfulness and Buddhism, and these ideas really appealed to him. He learned that he could better he, he, he learned that he could feel better if he detached from his expectations. And he also learned that most people are slaves to their attachments. That's what the YouTube video was telling him. And he learned that if he detaches from his attachments, he would be able to overcome his dependence on other people, and this really appealed to him. But really, any answer appealed to him because he was suffering so much. Again, it wasn't just like depression; it was being untethered, un- disconnected. You know, just just completely in despair. His mind would bounce from feeling humiliated to feeling despair and loneliness, deep loneliness, to feeling extreme rage, like he wanted to burn the school down, to feeling numb. To feeling desperate. He found that it helped to tell himself that he didn't need anyone. It helped if he believed that he could survive on his own. And it helped if he put his energy into things that he was good at, like sports and school and being the good kid, being the charming one. He joined the school newspaper and started publishing articles about politics and about how women have personality problems. Later in college, he still felt lonely and ruminated on moments of social anxiety. After going to a party, he would ruminate about the various things that he said and he promised himself that he would work on those things so that he didn't make a fool out of himself in the future. He found that alcohol helped and soon he was drinking almost every night. And it really gave him something to do, it numbed the pain and it gave him an excuse to go out and be with friends again. He was often he was often the life of the party. He had a loud voice And he became gregarious when he drank alcohol. He learned how to do magic tricks and became pretty good at it. And he started performing at birthday parties. He had many friends, but none of them were very close. He went to parties and bars and clubs and met a lot of women. He was good at getting women to like him. He knew that about himself. He took a lot of pride in being able to get them to like him and, you know, maybe have sex. He wasn't mean to them, but he also wasn't particularly respectful and particularly nice. He definitely didn't um, settle down with any of them. His friends saw him as a ladies' man. His friends also saw him as being super talented and as someone who knew a lot of interesting people and a lot of interesting things. But they also saw him as someone who was arrogant and thought highly of himself. In fact, they had a nickname for him. They called him the Donald, as in Donald Trump, referring to his arrogance. In his friend group, he was a risk taker. He started shoplifting. First it was food, then clothes, and eventually he was stealing jewelry and other expensive things. He did it for the thrill and to show off and to have nice things to wear. And he would sometimes tell his friends, those rich people don't deserve those things. That's why I steal from them. Sometimes he would get really angry at one of his friends for being stupid or immature or making him look bad. He was highly judgmental of other people. He, he often saw the flaws in other people and, and just was really aggravated by it. And he told all of his friends about, you know, this person or that person and how this person had that flaw and that person had that flaw. And his friends often agreed with him. They, they saw him as someone who could really read people. These flaws really aggravated him. It made him very angry. Occasionally he would get really drunk and express his deep anger. About other people. And other times he would get really drunk and express his deep love and attachment f- uh, for some of the women that he was dating. But when he woke up the next day, he wouldn't feel the same way. He wouldn't feel anger and he wouldn't feel deep love. He just didn't feel anything. And sober minded, he thought him- he thought of himself as someone who didn't need relationship. He saw dependency as being weak. That wasn't for him. Women often told him that he was really hard to figure out. And he seemed to attract women who were highly emotional and sometimes unstable. And he developed a viewpoint that women were generally overly emotional and generally inferior. He wouldn't say inferior, but that's basically what he felt. And he also found that some women, some women, were, women were just psycho. It had been a long time since he'd seen his family, His family was, you know, in the past. They were sources of pain for him, so he'd he'd rather just avoid them. So he moved across the country to a new city early in his adulthood. And for his career, he had big aspirations. He wanted to be the best trial lawyer in the world. He had seen lawyers on TV and in movies, and he just thought, that looks like a great job. So he went to law school, and he studied really hard, like really hard. His entire life was law school. He, it was, it's all he did. He spent all his time on campus and he, he, he met with his professors and he developed a lot of mentor relationships with his professors, particularly the director of the program. He also spent a lot of time in the gym. He really didn't want to gain weight like some of his friends did in college. One of his friends got an internship at a prestigious law firm and he was really jealous of his friend, but he didn't admit it. And internally, he compared himself to his friend. He thought, I'm a better student than he is. Why does he get the internship and not me? And he was really resentful of it. And he eventually began to talk shit about this friend at school. And he, his friends could tell that he was envious of the other guy. So, but he didn't know that they knew. And he started working really hard and using his charm to network better. He really wanted that internship at that firm. And everything he did was focused on that goal. People would ask him to go out and he'd say, nope, got to study. And, um, you know, he would meet a woman at a club and she would say, hey, let's hang out. And he'd say, nope, I got I to gotta study, sorry. You know, I, I have more important things to do. And eventually he got the internship and he was elated genuine happiness, and his friends saw him happy and and thought, wow, I'm so happy that he's happy. And he took everyone out to dinner at an expensive restaurant, very lavish, uh, to celebrate getting the internship. But after a few weeks at the internship, he found that the position was not as great as he thought it would be. The lawyers at the firms treated him like he was a peon, and he realized that he was just a lackey. And there were rumors among the interns that the firm rarely promoted interns to higher positions. So he felt demoralized and he just felt shattered and he fell into despair. Everything he did was focused on getting that internship and now that he had it, he, he, it was you know really um, a disappointment and he was confused. He didn't know what to do. He was also kind of confused with his feelings. He thought, why, you know, why do I feel so upset and, and why do I feel so untethered from the earth? He felt as though he had been wasting his entire career, maybe his entire life. In an instant, he hated law school, and he hated the idea of being a lawyer. He wondered why he ever wanted to be a lawyer. He thought to himself, lawyers are selfish. They're all self-centered dildos. He didn't know what to do, and he was desperate. So he went to therapy for the first time. And when the therapist asked him what he wanted to get out of therapy, he said, I don't know. You're the doctor. You tell me. The therapist told him that it was up to him to figure out what he wanted from therapy. And that was not the therapist's job to, you know, tell a client what they should be in therapy for. He didn't really like that answer, and he got through that first session, but he never went back. He concluded that therapy was for, you know, dependent chumps. And instead, he decided he would go through grad school and start his own firm. This was the answer. That would show the rest of them. It would be his firm. He would he would be in control. He wouldn't be dependent on anyone for anything, to give him anything. And that felt good to him. He had a vision to strive for. And he would often visualize this vision. He fantasized about what he was going to call his firm, what his office would look like, how many employees he would have. And at night, before falling asleep, he would daydream about being interviewed about how successful his law firm was, like in some lawyer magazine or something. He also fantasized about someone writing a biography about his life, and about how he would explain this chapter of his life, and how he had hit bottom at this internship, and that's when he realized that he needed to make his own firm, and that was the beginning of a long, successful career. But honestly, he didn't know what else to do with his career. Um, You know, uh, he, he didn't really like being a lawyer anymore. He wasn't as excited about it. You know, originally he was very excited about it. He was very into it and loved the lifestyle. But now that he had this disappointment, it's really soured the, the profession for him. And, and he, although he really wanted to have his own firm, he, he wasn't really into it anymore. And at school he started cutting corners, like not paying attention to class and, not reading the reading assignments that were assigned in class. He he did just enough to get by. He saw many of his classes as really just being beneath him. He thought that his professors were going too slow or that his classmates were all idiots. Eventually, he graduated and started working toward his goal of running his own firm. And he met a woman, and she was really, really nice. She wasn't demanding like some of the other women he dated. She had a similar background to him. Her parents were also alcoholics, and they bonded over that. Eventually, they got married, and they had kids, and they seemed to be the perfect couple. They had a nice house and a good neighborhood. Their Instagram pictures were all beautiful, but really, they fought a lot. They fought about the house. They fought about money. They fought about how many kids they were going to have. They fought about many things. But in the end, they thought their marriage was fine. And in between the fighting, they tended to live fairly independent of each other, you know, for, for reasons that they were, they both considered themselves to be very independent. And also it helped to alleviate the fighting. Each of them were really focusing on their careers. They were both really good at their jobs and they were, they were both climbing the ladders of their careers, respective careers. She worked in a different industry and they both started drinking a lot which sometimes led to some really ugly fights. He often criticized her for many things. He told her that she spent too much time at work and that her political opinions were misguided, completely misguided. He often commented on the way that she dressed. He would tell her that her outfits were either, you know, too slutty or, you know, too conservative. He told her that she wasn't ambitious enough at her work and that, She wasn't very good with money. He criticized even the way that she argued about things, saying that she didn't really know how to stand up for herself. He made her feel little and stupid and incompetent. So they spent a lot of time apart. They got pregnant, but he wasn't that interested in parenting. It was being a parent was mostly her idea. So he left all that to his wife for the most part. And he concentrated on his career. And he became increasingly successful in his law practice. And his wife realized that if she wanted him to be in a good mood, she would have to frequently appreciate how much money he was making, even though she didn't really care. He started flirting with women at work, and he occasionally had an affair. When his friends asked him why he was having the affairs, he said that his wife was not his soulmate and that he was looking for real love. He eventually had his own firm, like I said, which initially made him feel on top of the world. He, you know, finally was in control. He had finally realized his goal, and he was elated, and he took everyone out to an expensive restaurant to celebrate his success, but later he realized that he was just another firm among many, and There wasn't really anything special about his firm, and it was hard to get clients. And again, he fell into a deep, deep despair. Everything he had done over the past number of years was focused on having his own firm. And now that he had finally achieved his goal, he didn't really care about it anymore. He thought about going to therapy, but he decided against it. He knew he could get through this by detaching from his attachments. He remembered that YouTube video. He was good at that. He was good at detaching. He was also better than, he considered himself better than most people in that he could detach. You know, he didn't, he wasn't bogged down by all those kinds of things. And he got through that time. But, you know, he drank a lot and, you know, maybe he started to use some cocaine. He started hiring a lot of employees and his employees realized that he, would, he could be really nice sometimes, but he could also be really mean sometimes. And sometimes he was in a really bad mood. He always knew what kind of mood he was in. And they everyone learned to gauge his mood for self-preservation. He also made a lot of promises to, empl- to his employees, telling them that if they did a really good job and if they were loyal to his firm, he would reward them very, very, very well. He really knew how to incentivize things. But a lot of the promises that he made were impossible for him to follow through on. For example, he couldn't make everyone, you know, a partner, for example. And he was often very stressed with his work. When things weren't going well, he was extremely stressed about it. And when things were um, going, so, so when things were going well, he was stressed about maintaining it. When things were not going well, he was very stressed about the possibility of failure. It really dogged him day and night. He would also check his net worth often to see how he was doing. He would check his portfolio. He always knew exactly how much he was worth, even though he really didn't have any need for the money. I mean, he had everything he needed and um, he could retire at that point if he wanted to. When his employees would do something wrong, he would be livid, livid. He would immediately call them and tell them to meet him in his office he called these meetings come to Jesus meetings in which he calmly described what the employees did wrong. He was very adept at these meetings. He wouldn't, he wouldn't exhibit his anger. He's very calm. He knew to remain very still and to have a low voice, but his words communicated everything and his employees would be extremely intimidated by these meetings. His employees would sometimes cry in these meetings he would calmly tell them that they needed to learn from their mistakes. And he would propose ideas about why they made the mistake. Perhaps they lacked willpower. Maybe they didn't have good enough character. Maybe they needed to go back to school. Maybe they needed him to mentor them. Some employees quit because they felt belittled by him. But many stayed because they saw him as a genius. And they learned to accept his occasional criticism and the way he would belittle other people. Plus, he knew so many important people. They needed to stay close to him because he could make or break their career. And the one that stayed were the ones who were loyal to the firm, and he considered this very important. Once he found out that... Once, he found out that an employee was moonlighting at a rival firm, and he went ballistic on her. He told her she she had a choice. She could either quit this other firm, or he would destroy her career. She was terrified of him. She had no idea that he would be that upset about it. And she gave in to his demands, even though she didn't really have to. He started painting as a hobby. He got really into it. And people were really impressed that he could take up painting so late in life. He eventually got his paintings into an art gallery downtown, and he was really proud of this. And at the opening night, he pressured the CFO of his firm to buy some of his art. And he put up a few of his his paintings in the lobby of his firm. One of his clients wrote a negative review about his law firm online. He did not react well to this. He called everyone into his office, and everyone knew it was going to be a big deal because they knew his personality. They knew it wasn't going to go over well. And he demanded that everyone figure out how to deal with this crisis. And although a lot of the other people didn't consider it a crisis because, you know, one bad review isn't that big of a deal, they knew that they couldn't say that because he would bite their head off. So they proposed a lot of ideas. And one employee suggested that they sue the client, this former client, for libel. He loved that idea and told them to run with it. And he dedicated a lot of resources to suing that person for libel. At home, there was still a lot of distance and occasional conflict. He spent a lot of time in the garage. He drank and or smoked pot, and he worked on his paintings. He didn't really have a particular style in his paintings. He tended to mimic other styles of other painters, but he would never admit that. He would claim that he he, he had his own style and that they these paintings just emerged from his soul. When people asked him what his paintings met, meant, he never really knew what to say, so he would often just make something up. He would mimic that, too. He would watch YouTube videos of other artists talking about what their pieces meant, and he would develop a kind of repertoire of responses. But none of them really resonated with him. In fact, he thought everyone was just being a big phony. He thought that all artists and all creative people were just making shit up. His, His wife learned to be a buffer between him and the kids. She often felt like he was just one of the children instead of having a partner in parenting. She often felt like he was trying to compete with the other children for her attention. And whenever he was talking to the children, she made sure she was always right there to mediate because he often said things that were not good, you know. When she tried to talk with him about it, he would say that she was too passive as a parent or too liberal as a parent. But over time, he learned that it was just best to leave the parenting to her. I mean, that's woman's work anyway. He had more important things to do. Eventually, after a number of years, his wife met another man at work and they had a an affair and they fell in love without warning because she knew that if she talked with him about it, he would go ballistic. So she spent a number of months planning to leave him and she uh, one day served him the divorce papers and moved out with her family. She knew that she, she was afraid that he might, I, I don't know what. Well, she moved out, and he was shocked, and he was so angry. I mean, he thought the marriage was perfect. Again, as in other moments of crisis in his life, he felt completely untethered. He was in complete despair, not depression. Depression is different. Depression is kind of like an acceptance for, for what's happening, and you're sad about it. That's not what he felt. What he felt was distress and despair and emptiness, and again being untethered like unconnect disconnected not kind of like he wasn't real anymore he was he was invisible again he felt deep humiliation and he worried about what um, other people would think about him that his wife would leave him because he had painted this world of perfection people thought his his life was perfect the perfect mansion on the hill the perfect law firm the perfect dress the most beautiful wife the most beautiful kids And now all of that was coming, you know, it was shattered. And again, he would pace around at night in utter panic. He didn't want her to leave him. He didn't want to be humiliated. He didn't want to be alone. And he desperately tried to get her back. He was willing to give up everything to get her back. He even went to therapy again. And this time he really opened up. In therapy with his therapist, he talked about his life, and he often blamed his wife for their past conflicts, and he sometimes insinuated that the therapist didn't really know how to help him, and the therapist thought this guy was really a piece of work, but she was intimidated by him, so she didn't really confront him on a lot of things, and she let him talk a lot. His friends told him to just, you know, just forget your ex-wife and find a new life, but He really couldn't imagine a life without her. So he begged his wife to come back, and he begged his wife to tell him what he needed to do to get her back. He told her about all the work he was doing in therapy and that he realized how much he had hurt her over the years. He completely handed himself over to her. She was surprised to see him this way. She thought he didn't really care about her. But now he was showing that he really did care, which was surprising to her. Her friends told her to move on, forget about him. But there was still something that drew her back to him. He he was sort of a magnetic person. And so she ended the affair and moved back in with her husband. And soon after that, he ended therapy, and their relationship turned to normal. And the story goes on from there. So that's one possible profile of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. There are many different profiles. That's that's one of probably a hundred that I could come up with. But I think it fits a a very common profile of someone with narcissistic personality. And and it's a typical one, I think, for my region of the world. And on the Internet, uh, there are different stories. (laughs) There are often descriptions that don't really encapsulate what I understand to be narcissistic personalities or and as a result of all these really poor descriptions, because I'm guessing as you're listening to me describe this, you're like, huh, that isn't exactly what I thought narcissistic personality disorder was. Unless you actually know, because you might actually know someone like this and know that they have you know, that personality disorder. Um, but for people who don't really know, you might think like, well, that's not what I thought narcissistic personality disorder. Because if you if you look on the internet, what you think narcissistic personality disorder is, is a girl who likes to take a lot of selfies. Because half of the articles, that's the picture they have. They have a lot of girls with taking pictures, you know, a lot of selfie things. <laughs> or they'll have like these super extreme cases like Charles Manson or something. But the fact is, is that people with narcissistic personality disorder are regular people. And... You know, they don't end up in prison for mass murder. (laughs) The vast, vast majority of them. Um, As I mentioned before in my other episode on narcissistic personality, research has found that lay people have a really tough time identifying um, any personality disorder, let alone uh, narcissistic personality. In fact, research has shown that among the personality disorders, they have lay people have the hardest time with narcissistic personality disorder. And research has even found that um, clinicians often fail to recognize it as well. It's it's a really difficult thing to understand. And yet, it's one of the most commonly described and discussed personality disorders on the internet. But I have only come to understand it after years and years, you know, 20 plus years of studying it, experiencing it reflecting on it, treating it, talking about it. And, and I still have a hard time really grasping it. It's a tough, you know, you have to understand personality and development and culture and um, normal ranges of narcissism. It's a very hard thing. And it's frustrating to see so much bad information on the internet. Um, And frankly, in a lot of training programs, I mean, there are people who graduate from training programs who probably have talked about narcissistic personality disorder like kind of in one class, which, you know, is not unusual given the amount of topics that a training program has to hit on. But honestly, I I think that training programs should spend a lot more time on personality disorders because I would guess that most clinicians have a have a client with narcissistic personality disorder at least a few times a year, if not way more often than that. But they often don't know it because they don't know how to recognize it. And even, even if they do know how to recognize it, they don't know how to treat it. I mean, I've heard experienced clinicians announce, like, declaratively, that it's impossible to treat someone with narcissistic personality disorder, which just isn't true. I mean, it's not easy, but it's definitely not impossible. I mean, if you don't want to treat them, that's fine. That's just your preference. Or if you don't feel like you're competent to treat them, then that's also fine. No, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not evidence that it's impossible to treat the disorder. So anyway, that's that's my little rant on that. But um, having said that, there are people out there that I fully respect. Otto Kernberg, still with us, uh, wonderful genius, and uh, where I get um, really a lot of my conceptualization and understanding of narcissism from. Um, anyway, so this is part two of my deep dive into narcissistic personality disorder. Um, I just finished part one and that was over five hours long. Uh, I, and even, and even though it's five hours long, I recorded those five hours over the span of like a week (laughs) because I had to write and think and record and write and, you know, I, I couldn't just ramble for five hours, you know, I had to. So, so, uh, this is these, these two episodes on narcissistic, these two deep, one deep dive spread out over two, two episodes and each one I'm guessing are going to be, you know, five hours long. The first one is definitely five hours. I'm guessing this, this part's going to be maybe even more. I don't know. It just takes a really long time to describe narcissism. And I've been prepping for this topic for many years so I have a lot of things to say and there's a lot of things in the media worth commenting on, you know, does Kanye West have, have narcissistic personality disorder? Does Donald Trump, this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, how do you treat it? What's the history? What did Freud say about it? You know, um, what's the difference between histrionic and narcissistic and borderline and antisocial and complex PTSD? Like there's just so many different things to think about. And since I'm fairly since I'm a fairly comprehensive podcaster, I can't help but to just talk and talk and talk <laughs> and and have my, you know, notes that um, are, my notes are almost 100 pages long uh, for this episode. So, anyway, welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet... This episode will end before the rest of the content goes on. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of deep dives and patron exclusive episodes on various topics. I've done other episodes on histrionic on antisocial borderline and, and a lot of other topics. and, Also, when you become a patron, you should know that you don't have to listen to most of the commercials, and also remember that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support.
1: It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain